second. Something happened? Okay, so we're a little early. Well, I'm going to jump in if everybody else is two minutes early. Well, good. I can keep working on some of the jokes that I had. I'm just kidding. I'm just kidding. All right. Well, how's everybody doing tonight? Good? I say tonight. I usually say good morning on Wednesdays because most of the time I see you guys on Wednesday on, uh, in the mornings. So, well, we'll jump in. Um, so, everyone's doing good. I'm glad to see. I feel like each week we get more and more people. So, hopefully next week we'll have a full house. That'll be great. That'll be great. All right. Well, a couple announcements real quick. First one being, um, you know what? I didn't get that up there. It's this Thursday, Miss Betty. Is that right? Tomorrow, which is this Thursday. That's one and the same. Yeah, it's cool how that works. Yes, this Thursday, which is tomorrow, senior luncheon. And that starts, remind me, at 11 o'clock, right? It'll be a, a potluck lunch. And David Lusk, who usually sings up here right around this area on Sunday mornings, will be sharing a word. And if you haven't had a chance to sit down and talk to David, he has a really great heart and really incredible message that he, he brings. And uh, I think it would be a really, really great place uh, for everybody to, to learn from him. So if you get a chance, tomorrow at 11, um, also next Thursday, so... Um, then that will be good. The next thing is that Pastor Mike, so this, I've been doing three weeks on prayer. Pastor Mike will be back next week, and he's going to be starting a brand new series on courage. Uh, so you don't want to miss that. It will be really great. And then uh, we do have a funeral tomorrow for Debbie uh, Bursiaga. Um, if, you, if you knew Debbie, if she, she blessed your life, we will be having that funeral. I, I don't have the time right now, but you can definitely reach out. Is that 2? Two? 2 o'clock. That's right. It is 2 o'clock. 2 o'clock here at the church, uh, come and pay your respects to the family, and uh, we look forward to seeing you there. So, uh, we'll jump in today. Like I said, the last three weeks, last two weeks, and then today, I've been talking about prayer. I don't know that I would call it a series that I've been doing, uh, because it really didn't fit into a series. It was topical uh, on prayer, but each week was a little bit different. And uh, last week, uh, the first week, we talked about the prayer paradox that uh, we come humbly before God as servants and he receives us as sons and that that sonship allows us to come in with a certain place of privilege, a certain place of uh, position to be able to ask things of him that only children of God can ask. The next week we talked about that prayer doesn't just change people, but it actually, or it, yeah, it doesn't just change people, but it actually changes things. Prayer actually has a way of changing things and that we have, a, have an authority in Christ to be able to to pray things, to declare things, and to see those things happen as they align with the will of God. And so today we're going to be touching on a little bit different part of that. Um, before we do that, I'd like to open up in prayer. I think that would be appropriate when you're talking about prayer. So anybody in here today, you just have something going on that you need a, a body of believers to come around you and believe with you, to support you, whether you're here or online. If you'll just slip your hand up to, to let me know there is a need. If you're online, if you would just comment. Uh, we'd love to pray with you, and uh, let's just open in prayer real quick. Dear Heavenly Father, I thank you so much for this awesome opportunity for us to come and to study the scriptures together. I pray that you would allow your spirit to, uh, to, to speak to us tonight, to show us things that we've never seen in the text before, and empower us to go out and to do the work that you called us to do. I pray that you would touch every need in this room that was, that was signified by a comment or a raised hand. Father, you know what's going on. You're not just far off and distant, but you're right in the middle of it. You grieve with us when we grieve. You rejoice with us when we rejoice. And I pray for all of those needs that you would bring peace to their situation. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Well, I'm titling this message tonight, The Potter's Wheel, and I'm going to be speaking from Romans 8, 28, and 29. I'm going to read it real quick, and then we'll jump in and give a little bit of background. Uh, Romans 8, 28 through 29. And we know that God causes all things to work together for good to those who love God, to those who are called according to his purpose. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to become conformed to the image of his Son, so that he would be the firstborn among many brothers and sisters. Now, how many of you ever heard Romans eight twenty eight before? 
I would think that it is probably up there on the list of scriptures such as John 3.16, uh, Jeremiah 29.11, uh, some of those, Psalm 23. Some of those, I think Romans 8.28 is one of those big buzz scriptures that kind of gets put in there. And for good reason. I think it's a great passage, easy to remember, and very, very powerful. Now, I'll tell you a little bit about my background and my story with this particular verse. For whatever reason growing up, even though I was... Uh, lived in a pastor's, uh, pastor's home, and I grew up in church. I really wasn't exposed to this particular passage uh, in the church setting. I'd really never heard it before, really never had been touched on before. I was about 17 years old, and I got very serious about my faith. And just in a time of devotion, I decided to really uh, dig into the book of Romans. And that was kind of the first time that I took my faith seriously, that as I dug into that, my faith became more of my own and not just something that my parents had taught me, which I think we all need to go through. Uh, I even came to the point in about a month's time, I read that, that letter, that letter to the Romans every day, through, and I just felt like if you're really going to understand it, you need to understand it the way that it was originally read in its full context. And I immersed myself in that. It actually led me to get baptized again. I was baptized whenever I was eight. Felt like I probably didn't really understand what I was doing then. And so I, uh, about 18 years old, I got rebaptized, and that was a very meaningful time for me. Uh, and my faith was really shaped as I immersed myself in the book of Romans. I began to understand how grace works. I began to understand what Jesus actually did on the cross. And one of the verses that stuck out to me was Romans 8.28. Like I said, I hadn't really heard it preached. I hadn't heard it taught. So I didn't have a lot of preconceived notions coming into it. I really saw it within the context of the scripture. And for whatever reason, a lot of it became very popular. It was probably like if, you know, you buy a red car, suddenly you start seeing red cars everywhere. I'd probably heard the verse, not really paid attention to it, um, but it became very popular. A lot of people would quote it. I would see it show up places. Pastors would preach on it. Worship songs had it as a part of their lyrics. And suddenly I began to realize I read this in context, but the way it's being preached isn't quite the same way. And then on a further extreme, I saw some who would preach it and really took it out of context and preached it to a completely different level. And even myself, as I, as I grew and I dug into it further, I realized I didn't even have the proper understanding of it. And we'll get to that in a little bit. But I really felt like tonight it would be good as we're talking about prayer to dig into this passage, to break it apart, to try to understand a little bit more about uh, what we're doing. And, and I want to preface by saying that those other views, one of the views being um, kind of talked about like a uh, uh, God will make good things happen, and when he does, there, there's a silver lining. So if you go through bad things in your life, there's a silver lining at the end. God makes good things good things come out of bad things, right? That's kind of the way that some people have taught that. And then the further extreme is if you love God and if you are faithful, then not only is he going to do good things, but he's going to prosper you. He's going to bless you. Your life is just going to be overflowing with wealth and with health, and it's just going to be a great life. It's, it's a great life to be a Christian. That's kind of the way that it's preached. And I, I want to preface by saying those aren't necessarily wrong views, but I do think they just barely scratch the surface. And so tonight I really want to dig deep. So the common understanding of the text is that God will bring good out of your situation. The end will justify the means. There's always a silver lining. One day it'll all be worth it. Some even take it as far as to say that if you love God, if you're faithful in prosperity. But the problem with that approach is that Romans 8 is not a prosperity passage. It's not a prosperity passage at all. It's very easy to see how people come to that conclusion. The idea that if you love God, then God will make you prosper. God will bring good things into your life. And again, that's true. My life is so much better because I love God than if I didn't. And even as I walk through difficult situations, I, as I've gotten older and I've really matured in my faith, I don't really understand why people walk away from the faith when things get tough. And simply because of this, things aren't going to get easier because I walked away from the faith. But at least in the faith, there's peace, and there's at least hope and something to hold on to. Why would I walk away from that when, when trouble gets tough? My life is better because I love God. 
So there's truth in that, that that God has caused me to prosper. There's things in my family that I would deal with if I wasn't a Christian. There are things that uh, we, just in my job setting, of course, I probably wouldn't work at a church if I didn't know Jesus. Maybe, uh, there's some. But if I worked somewhere else, I would probably deal with things that I don't deal with because of my love for God. So there's truth to that, that he causes my life to be better, but... The problem with this view is that it works until it doesn't work. I was a hospital chaplain. Some of you might know that. And what I saw very, very often was that this misinterpretation, I'll put it that way, misinterpretation of the verse caused people to think, if I'm right with God, nothing bad will happen to me. If I'm right with God, and there are preachers who who preach this, that I will never struggle financially. If I'm right with God, then I will be healed. It is, some would say it's always God's will to heal. Well, as a hospital chaplain, part of my job was to sit with families on a daily basis, sometimes two, three, four, sometimes ten families at a time, who were losing their loved ones. And I watched more times than I want to count people who would walk away from the faith Because this promise that they had been given fell through. But it wasn't really a promise at all. It was a misapplication of a scripture that really means something much deeper than just this idea that if I check the box, then everything's going to be okay. So let's rip this apart tonight and let's see if we can't get to the heart of what the Holy Spirit through Paul is trying to show us. First of all, let's look at who this applies to. It says, those who love God. Well, what does that mean? The prosperity interpretation focuses on this part of the passage when finding application. This appears to be a command. Love God, and he'll make things good. How many of you were taught the gospel that way? That if you make a decision for Christ, and you come up to the front, and you give your life to Christ, then things will get better. Your life's going to be better. You'll have a better sense of life. And that's again, there's nothing wrong with that idea. But I think that the church tends to struggle with the next step. We tell people that life is going to get better. We tell them that they'll be blessed, be healed, and ultimately enjoy a better life. But then we don't know what to do when life isn't good. When people don't receive the blessing they think they were going to receive. When a loved one dies. After all, isn't God a healer? We often preach the gospel in such a way that we seem to, hand, hand, we seem to be handing out loyalty reward cards. If you just, you know, like the yogurt store, if you just punch it enough times, then, then you get the free yogurt at the end. Uh, but our faith is not about perks and benefits. In fact, Paul isn't making an appeal for people to join the faith. He's not saying, hey, look, this is a really great club to be a part of. Because if you just do all the right things, everything works out for you. He's not saying, come and love God. If you do, he'll make things work good for you. No, those who love God are, what does the text say? Those who are foreknown and predestined according to his purposes. That's a lot to say. Each person in this room can probably tell me the day that they made their decision for Christ. The day that they felt an unction in their heart to walk down the aisle, come to the altar, and say a prayer make a decision for Christ, and I I mean, I remember that for me, and I hold on to it, because that was a day that I publicly acknowledged Jesus Christ, and my life changed. I hold on to that, and I would venture to say that everybody in this room has a similar story. Maybe it wasn't in a church. Maybe, like Pastor Mike talks about, it was in a barracks. Maybe it was something even more extreme than that. I've heard people who were literally in a, a, one evangelist in particular, who was in about to overdose on drugs, and that was whenever he had his conversion story, and God healed him instantly. What a powerful thing. We have these stories, and it would seem like we were persuaded to join this, but let me tell you, and let me kind of break the news to you, that was not your idea. You coming to faith was not your idea. God had been working in you a long time before that moment happened. He had been priming you, getting you ready for that time, that one time that you heard the gospel message and it clicked. He did that. He called you. He looked at the beginning of time. He looked into the future. He saw you. He chose you. He called you in. And when that happened, he had already been doing a work in you longer than you could even begin to imagine. You could even say before you were born. You could even say before creation happened at all. He had you in mind. It was his idea. It wasn't ours. We are foreknown. We were predestined according to his purposes. 
You didn't just decide one day that the gospel sounded good. The Bible says that no one comes to Christ unless the Father draws them. The Spirit had been working on your heart, priming you for that very moment. Why? Because God foreknew and predestined you. Now, what does it mean to be foreknown and predestined? Now, there's a lot that could be said about that. There's a lot of debate. And it's very hard to use those terms, especially coming out of a seminary background. You can't really use those terms without being ready for a long and lengthy debate over what it means to be predestined to be foreknown? Did God simply know who would choose him or did he choose them? And we could spend all kinds of time. I am not going to go that direction tonight, but the words are in the text and I believe that we have a responsibility to address them. Suffice it to say, looking at the context of our passage, foreknew and predestined means this. God chose you, he handpicked you, and he, he handpicked you to shape you and to form you for his purposes. That's the takeaway. How it all worked we don't really know. But I do know this. If you were a believer today, it was not by accident. It was not your idea. It was God had a major hand in it. And he did it for his purposes, not yours. He did it because he had a plan for you. And that's why you were foreknown and predestined. So already the verse begins to take shape. This is not a if you, then God will statement. It's a description of how God interacts with his elect. God predestined you for this purpose, and he causes all things to work for your good. Which are those purposes? Immediately we see that Paul is not making a claim that God is some cosmic fairy godmother passing out blessings to all the good little boys and girls. He chose you, and he chose us so that he could use us for his purposes. And he will move mountains to ensure that those purposes are fulfilled. But what does that mean? What, are the, what is the good what are the purposes? Scripture says that he, make, he makes all things work for the good of those who love him, who are called, predestined for his purposes. What does that mean? What are those purposes? What is the good? This is where my own interpretation fell apart. See, I never believed that God was going to give me whatever I wanted. That wasn't my understanding. In fact, for me, being a teenager, there were often times that uh, doors would close. Maybe, uh, I, I remember very specifically, um, I had a college in mind of where I was going to go. I had it all planned out. I, it, was, it was great. Uh, th- there, was, there was a particular girl there who was going to be going to that college who I later married because God does work all things out for the good of those who love him. But we were going to go to college together. And suddenly that plan changed, and I felt like a door had closed. And this verse was very meaningful to me because I took it to mean God closed a door, and down the line, it's going to, he's going to open another one. It's going to be better. It's going to be, make more sense. And there's some truth to that, but there's, there's more to it. So this is where it began to fall apart for me. I knew that the good was ultimately, God, uh, ultimately shaped by what God knew was good for me. My early application was that if certain doors didn't open, he'd open a window, all that. I realized that it wasn't just good things at all, it was something deeper. He wasn't just wanting to give me good things. That wasn't really the the, the gist of this passage. doesn't mean that he doesn't want to give us good things. What I'm getting at is that's not what this particular verse is actually saying. There's other verses that we could pull to get that type of an understanding. What is he actually saying here? It's much deeper. What is good? What are his purposes according to the text? It says that we would be conformed to the image of his son. That's the good. That's the purpose. That's why he predestined you. That's why he foreknew you. That's why he moves mountains to bring the good, which is to conform you to the image of Jesus Christ. It's not so that if a door closes, one day a better door will open, and that will actually be what you wanted all along, and oh, look at me, that's great, I've grown. That's not really what's happening here at all. God wants to change you, and he will move mountains to do it. And he wants to change you because he chose you to change you. He wants to change you because you need to be changed. And he's pretty good at doing that type of work. He's pretty good at fulfilling the the, the job description that he's given himself, which is to be the one who changes, to be the conformer. And he will do anything he can. The, The good he works for us is the conformity to his image. It's not about blessings, prosperity, health, or even a better life. It's about finishing the work that was started on the cross. It's another way of stating the promise that's found in Philippians chapter 1, verses 6, where he says, He who began a good work in you will complete it by the day of Christ Jesus. You've heard that verse. What Paul is doing is he's talking to the, the, the Corinthian church, or not the Corinthian church, I'm sorry, the church at Philippi. 
And it's actually a pretty interesting text because if you know anything about that church, all the good things he says about them were not true. He was trying to lift them up and encourage them. And he was trying to say, hey, this is who you could be. And then he says, my confidence is that Christ Jesus will finish the work. In other words, he's saying, I'm not confident in you at all. I don't think you're going to make it on your own, but I'm confident in the one who started the work that he will complete it. That's a powerful statement. Because how many of you today, and I'll raise my hand on this, feel like if it's up to me, I'm not going to make it? How many of you know somebody who would you say if it's up to them, they're not going to make it? How many of you are sitting, I'm just kidding, don't, don't go that direction. Um, no, but, but for real, and, and I remember uh, I've done premarital counseling with couples before, and I bring this up, and I'll say, you know what? There are two things in your marriage that will cause it to fall apart. One sitting right there, the other sitting right there. And if it's up to you, if you try to do this on your own, I'm pointing to the couple, by the way, if you didn't pick up on that. Um, if, if it's up to you, you're going to fail. But that's why there's a third person in every marriage. We bring God into it because my confidence is in him that he will bring those two together. And we put it there, he's going to see that through to completion. The will of God is laser focused on one primary goal redeeming mankind and leading them through sanctification, which is becoming like Christ. I recently had a discussion with somebody about healing and whether or not it is God's will to heal. Now, I do believe that God heals. I've seen it happen. I believe that Scripture teaches that, the, that, that, that God heals, and I don't see anything in Scripture that indicates that that ever stopped. Now, do I believe that God always heals? Absolutely not, because it doesn't always happen. Do I believe that it's always God's will to heal? I really have a hard time speaking on the will of God because I don't know. I don't know what God wills to do in certain situations, but I do know what he wills to do in one situation, and I do know that his will is laser-focused primarily on this, and that's redeeming people. So whatever else he does will always point back to that central focus, which is saving mankind. That's why he did everything that he did. That's why he created mankind in the first place, to save us and to redeem us. That's why he made a plan the moment that the fall happened. Instantly he had a plan. I believe he had a plan long before that. But we see it come out right away. We see it throughout history. He did so many things to make it happen. So whatever else he wills, I really don't know. But I do know that he wills to save mankind. Scripture teaches that God has healed, and there's no reason that he wouldn't heal today, but again, it's focused on what is his primary goal. What does it mean that God causes all things to work together for the good? That God orchestrated the events of our life to to ultimately fulfill his good purpose of conforming us to the image of Jesus Christ. God created the universe, created mankind, called Abraham, ordained Israel, influenced the movement of empires and world powers to create a culture, a language, and a geopolitical climate that ultimately preserved a small small speck on the earth called Judea. It would have been so, it would have been no surprise if that speck would have been wiped off in the process of these large powers coming up, Babylon, Persia, Greece. It would have been so easy. Other cultures were wiped off the face of the earth in the process of these takeovers and these, uh, these conquests, but, but Israel was not. Israel was not wiped off the face of the earth. In fact, from the onset, their culture was preserved. Whoever they were under, they had the opportunity to worship how they wanted to, which was almost unheard of for a conqueror to come in and say, just do your thing and we'll leave you over there. But it was God orchestrating those events and preserving these people throughout history. Why did he preserve those people through history? Because he was setting up a climate in which something could happen. And it was in that climate that years later a king would decide that he wanted to take take stock of his subjects and order a census in which a young carpenter and his his betrothed who was with child had to go to a small town called Bethlehem, have a baby which was prophesied centuries before and that that young baby that was born would be preserved and would would grow up and would save the world would preach a message of redemption, would die on the cross, resurrect, go to heaven, and sit at the right hand of the Father and intercede for you and me so that the the good that God wants to do would happen. That's a God who moves mountains to do what he wants to do. 
And what he wants to do is to save and to sanctify his people. And let me tell you that there's nothing, there's absolutely nothing that can keep that from happening. God will fulfill what he set out to do. If you've been called, if you've been, if you've been selected, he will do his work. I am confident that the one who began this good work in you will see it through to completion. And God will move mountains and make all things work together for that good. That's the God we serve. That's God working all things out for the good of those that he's predestined. He's still doing it today, and he's still orchestrating your life to fulfill his purpose. What an incredible thought to think that the same God who who navigated empires like Babylon and, and Rome and Greece, telling them how far they could go and, 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 and having charge over some of those things, influencing those nations, also wants to do the same thing in your life. Also wants to orchestrate the events, the daily things that happen in your life. Have you ever felt insignificant? You shouldn't. Because the God of the universe cares about the little things that takes place in your life. And not only does he care about them, but he's using them and he's orchestrating them for the purpose of conforming you to his image. There is nothing insignificant about you. Because God will move mountains to see that the work he began is completed in you. So let's summarize this. Let's kind of reinterpret it a little bit based on what we're looking at. The summary, if if you looked at Romans 8.28, is this. That the events of our life are the potter's wheel that he uses to sculpt his hand-picked clay to shape and mold into representations of Jesus Christ. If you've ever seen a potter's wheel, the potter places soft clay on a wheel and spins it. The clay is soft and easy to form. In the right hands, that soft clay can become beautiful and ornate jars and vessels. We can picture our life in the same way. Us in the hands of a master potter being shaped and formed as we spin around the universe. But, Life tends to have the opposite effect, doesn't it? It would seem that we're constantly fighting an uphill battle. That life tends to point us away from God rather than draw us closer. That hardships and disappointment have a way of causing us to treat, to trust God less, to distance ourselves from hypocritical people, and to ultimately become cold and guarded. How is it that God working all things out for, how is that God causing all things to work out for, for our good? If he has called us, predestined us, then why does it seem that we plateau or maybe even take a step back more often than we take a step forward? From our temporal, earthly perspective, we tend to interpret the events of life in this particular way. How many of you have just been beat up by life? How many of you have just felt like you can't can't get a break? Seems like every turn... You just, it may, maybe not at the point of life right now, but maybe at some point you felt that way. You felt, and it may have even been after you became a Christian. How does that make sense? God's working all things for your good, then why would we ever deal with things? I think even if we're at a place of financial stability or something, we still have moments where loved ones die or things just don't work out the way that we thought they would. And it seems like life is just beating us over the head. How is that God working out good? How is that making us more like God? Because it often drives us away from him. It often makes us trust him less. Our finite interpretation of life can make us hard and it can make us calloused. It can make us calloused. If, If you've ever worked with clay before and it starts to dry, that's the worst thing that can happen to clay because then it's not moldable anymore. It's not formable anymore. Even if just a small part of it, the whole clay becomes very difficult for the potter to shape. And that's kind of what happens to us. We become calloused and cold. And the promises that we held on to just don't seem to be working out the way that we thought they should. We lose loved ones. We lose jobs. We lose opportunities. We lose status. And suddenly that just doesn't bode well with us and we feel the need to become cold and calloused and and, uh, guarded and I can't let anybody in because of the people who hurt me. You know, we didn't start out that way. In fact, we all start out as soft and formable. Over the past 22 months, my wife and I have watched our son Grayson mature and develop. And when we brought him home from the hospital, we were actually just up there for our last sonogram and we walked past the place where uh, we put him in the car for the first time. And I just remember how terrified I felt this little bitty baby, and I'm like, why do people trust us to be parents? 
we can barely take care of ourselves. And somehow we've kept them alive for the past two years. But, I mean, sometimes that's really how it felt. But, you know, he was so impressionable. He was so little, and he was just so dependent and, and, and powerless and could do nothing on his own. If we would have left him by himself, he would have had no, he would have had no hope. He was dependent on us, completely soft and formable. In fact, and my wife's going to laugh at the story, uh, I learned how formable he was whenever he was really little, and I thought it would be funny uh, to throw his little soft blocks into the fan and let the fan smack him across the room. He laughed. He was month old. He thought it was funny. Half the time, it was kind of boring because he didn't do anything, so it was kind of something to do. Well, now at almost two years old, he likes to throw his baseballs up into the fan. Not good. (laughs) But he was impressionable. He was formable. He was watching me. He was developing his little personality based on what he saw me and and my wife do. And and the person he is, yes, I believe that he's not a blank slate. Don't get me wrong. God had had a plan and he's his own person. But a lot of who he is is shaped by what he's seen us. And it's still being shaped by what he's seen us do, which is terrifying in its own right. But it is. It is. And as we grow, we begin to experience the events of life, and we begin to make meaning. This is a normal developmental process that we all do throughout life. In our early years, we make meaning that ultimately shape how we make meaning in the future. Our meaning-making is shaped by our early assumptions, and the meanings that we make later are reinforced by those early meanings. This pattern continues until we receive new information that helps us to make meaning from a different perspective. So we all walk through life and we make meaning based on what we experience. We learn who we can trust. We learn who we can't trust. We learn that it's not a good idea to touch the stove because it's hot. And it doesn't matter how many times mommy and daddy tell you not to do that. You have to learn it for yourself. And once you do, sadly, it doesn't mean you won't do it again. But you know, we, we, eventually you get the picture, but that's how, it, that's how it works, is that we have to make meaning. We have to feel and, and sense and go through things, and we have to get hurt in order to find out that some people can't be trusted. We all make meaning out of pain, loss, and disappointment. Over time, we begin to expect people to act a certain way. If we've been hurt, then we expect people to hurt us. Over time, we learn to cope with these assumptions. Have you ever known somebody who was a chronic manipulator? Just a chronic manipulator. I can tell you at some point in their life, they felt like they didn't receive something they perceived that they needed. Whether it be a, uh, a, a necessity, whether they were neglected physically, or maybe they were just neglected emotionally. They reached out for something, and it was not given to them. Maybe it was abuse, maybe it was just neglect, maybe that person didn't know how to give them what they needed, but they began to realize, I'm not going to get what I need in this way, I need to find a new way. And so they find a way, and typically it's manipulating, and it works. It works. So they do it again. Worked again. So they do it again and again. And again, and again, and yes, there are people who are, who are so deeply uh, twisted in their own thinking that they know what they're doing and they do it anyway, but most people who are manipulators, they learned how to get what they needed at one point in time, and that's all they know. They don't even know they do it, but they know that this coping mechanism gets them what they need and what they want, and so they continue to do it, even into their adult life, even to people that they love. And it becomes very difficult because you can't say, hey, don't do that because they don't see it. That's all they've ever known. It's a coping that they have. Basic attempts to communicate needs didn't result in giving them what they needed, so they learned to manipulate. Uh, Since that worked, they continue, and eventually it becomes a part of their personality so ingrained that they're unaware that they even do it. Our meaning-making leads us to become defensive, hateful, unsettled, anxious, unkind, protective, disloyal, cold, and impulsive. Now, those are extremes, but all of us have dealt with that somewhere along the line. If, if, if we have walked through something difficult, we become hurt, we think we deserve something, we didn't get it, we become resentful, we become cold, we become callous, and we push people, and oftentimes God, away. Now, this perceived need may not have been neglect or abuse. It may have been that they were withheld something that was actually dangerous to them, but they perceived that it was a threat. 
and we make meaning out of the situation that led us to believe that we were neglected. We do the same thing when we encounter situations in life where where we lose a loved one or we walk through difficult situations. If we can't find another person to blame, we blame God. After all, he's in charge, right? We make meaning out of the difficult situation and our meaning making often leads us to believe that we've been shortchanged, we've been dealt a bad hand in the cosmic lottery. When this happens, our soft, malleable clay becomes hard like clay that's been sat out in the sun Maybe it's just certain parts, but even the smallest part makes it challenging for us to be molded and formed. As I mentioned earlier, passages are most often taken out of context when we fail to consider the rest of the chapter. So I want to take a, I want to look, take a wider lens tonight. I want to look at Romans 8, not as a whole, but parts of it, highlight some areas that I think are important. I'm going to start with verse 5 and work through verse 8. I'm going to read this, and if you see it up on the screen, I'm going to omit a couple parts here. And then I'm going to go back later and read those parts that I omitted. You'll see why I'm doing that in just a few moments. So this is Romans 8, chapter, uh, chapter 8, verses 5 through 8. It says, For those who are in accord with the flesh set their minds on the things of the flesh. For the mind set on the flesh is death. Because the mindset on the flesh is hostile toward God. For it does not subject itself to the law of God, for it is not even able to do so. And those who are in the flesh cannot please God. Life in the flesh leads to desiring flesh. If you are focused on the flesh, you will desire the things of the flesh. There's a term that's very popular right now. It's FOMO. Anybody ever ever heard of FOMO before? The fear of missing out. Have you ever wondered why people are always on their phones? Because they have a fear of missing out. This is an actual real uh, psychological thing that they're determining is that people need to have their phone close to them because what if I get a text message? What if I get an email? What if something happens on my social media and I need to know about it? What if my best friend uh, puts a TikTok on there? I, I need to watch it. What if something happens, and, and, and we, we, we criticize the younger generation for this, and it definitely has become a bigger thing. Obviously, psychology has seen it and made it a thing. But let me tell you, that's not new. Because before we had phones, we had a TV in our house, didn't we? We watched the news, didn't we? We get the newspaper, don't we? Before that, we turn on the radio, don't we? Before that, we, you know, we, we go down to the local whatever, and we, we gossip so we don't know what's going on. This is not new. Yes, technology has made it worse, but human nature is FOMO, fear of missing out. I don't want to miss out on anything. I'm afraid that if I don't do the right things in my life that I may not get the job that I deserve, and then I won't have the money that I deserve, and then I won't have all the things that I think I need in life. I'm afraid of missing out. I'm afraid of missing out on all the things that life has to offer. It's a fairly new term, but it's not new. FOMO is fertile soil for the enemy's influence. Remember that the enemy can, can, the enemy can only influence us to do that which we were already prone to do. One of the best tactics of the enemy is to influence us to focus on what we do not have. Wealth, health, status, position, promotion, and a better life. Even our loved ones who have passed on. The fall of man was the result of the fear of missing out. The first temptation that we see from Satan is to convince Eve that she was missing out. Missing out on eating the fruit, missing out on being like God. Truthfully, all sin can be traced back to this. We seek to abandon our father's house because we want to go into the town to see what the world has to offer. And we're afraid that if we stay in our father's house, that we're never going to know all the good things that life had. So I need my inheritance so I can go out and I can live it up. Well, as we see from that story, there's nothing out there. It's all fleeting. But that's what we do. That's where all sin starts, is that I need more. Because if I don't, I'm going to be missing out. Let let me just say that desire is not a bad thing. I'm not saying that you shouldn't desire that. People who build multi-billion dollar corporations that do great things, they had a desire to succeed. God has placed a desire to succeed inside of us. There's nothing wrong with that. But desire becomes sin when it accepts the lie that God's provision is not enough. When we are so afraid of missing out that we, we go out of our way to make it happen. When we do this, we suffer with disappointment, with grief, frustration, 
Now, these are all normal emotions, and they're even emotions that we see from God in Scripture. He, 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 he exhibits these. They're things that make us like him. There's nothing wrong with the emotions you feel. Loss is hard. It's gut-wrenching. Grief is the cost of loving someone. Disappointment is the price of daring to dream. Frustration is the fruit of a finite understanding. We feel what we feel. Emotions are there to tell us what's going on inside. They should not be ignored. In fact, more harm can be done by ignoring them than by figuring out what they're trying to tell you. But all emotion is an opportunity for deception. What we do with our emotions determines everything. You know, emotions are one of the driving forces behind impulsive decisions and crimes of passion, things that we would never think that we would do impulsively, we do it. But I want to make this clear tonight that that your emotions are nothing more than something that you feel. They don't dictate your actions. They don't dictate the things you do. Only conscious decisions can do that. What we do with our decisions determines how we impact. But if our, if our focus is on the, the, the flesh, that's what we'll desire. That's what we go after, and we'll be disappointed if we don't receive it. And let me just say that the world is full of things that we could have. So if you're, if you're trying to get it all, if you're trying to make sure that you have it all, you're going to be disappointed. So I want to go back and read Romans 8. Verses 5, now through 11, and I want to add in those places that we omitted. Those who are in accord with the Spirit set their minds on the things of the Spirit. The mind set on the Spirit is life and peace. However, you are not in the flesh, but in the Spirit. If indeed the Spirit of God dwells in you, but if anyone does not have the Spirit of Christ, he does not belong to him. If Christ is in you, Though the body is dead because of sin, yet the spirit is alive because of righteousness. But if the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, he who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his spirit who dwells in you. Life in the spirit leads us to desire what the spirit desires. This passage says that those who have the spirit of Christ desire what the spirit desires. If we desire what the spirit desires, then we will receive what the spirit has to give us. If we stop focusing on what the world has to offer, and I'm not just talking about our pre-Christian place of, of, of seeking after, even as Christians we do that. Even as Christians, we still focus on the fleshly things. We still, at times, have have those hard places in us that say, I deserve, I deserve, I'm entitled, I should have. Especially if you get into this idea that because I'm a Christian, God's going to make good things happen for me. If that's where you start from, you're really pursuing fleshly things. If the Spirit lives in you then you're in the realm of the Spirit. The realm of the Spirit exists above our earthly concerns. It exists in a place where the big picture is all that matters. Our passage says the mind governed by the Spirit is life and peace. The realm of the Spirit gives a new perspective, new meaning-making ability. Remember I said earlier, we will reinforce those early assumptions again and again and again and again until new information comes in and we're able to do something different. That new information is what the Spirit brings, this life and peace that passes understanding, this, this place of I don't really understand what the Spirit offers, but I want it and I'm pursuing it. And it changes the way we think and it changes our meaning-making. That place where we, where we become... Uh, malleable again when we embrace the mind of the spirit we're able to see our life from a god's eye view one of the most common issues that we face is that we become overly focused on our story that's become a buzzword right now my story i'm going to tell my story this is my truth my story we focus on how life has hurt us we focus on our disappointments we focus on our pain we focus on our loss but when we take our minds Uh, But but when we take on the mind of the cross, we see Christ is not just a part of our story, but we see that we're a part of his. We see that we are just a very, very, very small blip in a much larger story that's been unraveling since the beginning of time. And suddenly, the things that we deal with just don't seem that important anymore. They don't seem like as big of a deal because there's a redemptive story happening and we're a part of it. And when we become a part of that, when, when, when we do that, our meaning-making is no longer focused on what we're missing in the flesh, but on what we have in the Spirit. 
there's actually a process if the clay hardens where it can be rehydrated. And the potter can take the clay and put it in a bag of water and let it sit. And over time, he begins to mold it and it begins to soften again. And once it softens again, he can put it back on the wheel and he can spin it and he can begin to form it into what he wants to form it. We can be rehydrated again. Those hard, calloused parts inside of us that become unmoldable, unformable, it's not done. It's not over. It's not throw it out. Well, better luck next time. We tried. The Godhead isn't sitting up in heaven saying, oh, we tried with that one. I don't know what happened. They're just, they're too, they're, they're just not malleable. No, what God sets out to do, he accomplishes, and he has a way to, to, to rehydrate you. Now, you might be wondering, how does any of this have anything to do with prayer? Well, we're here now. Prayer is the process by which we become rehydrated. When we pray, we go through that process where God puts us and immerses us in that, in that water and begins to mold us. And, and it might be painful at times. It might be difficult at times. But he begins to do that. And in doing that, we become formable again. When the clay is rehydrated, it is moldable and able to be conformed for the potter's purposes. Jesus, our example here, Jesus overcame temptation, survived with bare necessities, and ultimately submitted his life to the will of the Father because he was not focused on what he was missing, rather what he had in the Spirit. When we talked about the prayer paradox, we said that Jesus illustrated this when he came and he, he asked a request that only a son would ask. God, cha- change this. But then he, he approached it as a servant and saying, but your will, not mine. That's what we have to do. That's the paradox, and that's what we have to do here. That's the example that he set. In Matthew chapter 26, verses 36 through 39. Then Jesus went with his disciples to a place called Gethsemane, and he said to them, Sit here while I go over there and pray. He took Peter and the two sons of Zebedee along with him and began to be sorrowful and troubled. Then he said to them, My soul is overwhelmed with sorrow to the point of death. Stay here and keep watch with me. Going a little further, he fell on his face to the ground and he did what? He prayed, my father, if it is possible, may this cup be taken from me, yet not as I will, but as you will. Jesus grieved over his death. The emotions that Jesus felt were real. He he grieved over the death he'd endure and he pushed forward because he saw through a bigger perspective. He saw through a spirit perspective instead of a flesh perspective perspective. Uh, it's important that Jesus sets his focus on the bigger picture, and even though the pain of the grief was real, he overcame and endured the cross because of the joy that was set before him. Hebrews chapter 12, verses 2 said, Looking only at Jesus, the originator and protector of our, or perfecter of our faith, who for the joy set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, he has sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. He, he, he focused on the bigger picture, that joy. And I, I, I talked on this not too long ago whenever I was up here, that that joy set before him was you. It was me. He had you in mind when he endured the cross. That's what he did. And, and, the, and the charge is that since he had us in mind, we can have him in mind. We can remember what he did. That's our hope moving forward. That even though what he felt was real, and I think that's important to note that Jesus felt grief. Jesus felt sorrow. Jesus felt agony, overwhelming, probably beyond anything that you and I could ever understand because we don't have to do what he did. He felt that. But he said, God, I'm going to look at the bigger picture. Father, I'm going to look at the bigger picture. Note that this occurred when Jesus was in prayer. Prayer invites the Spirit to do a work inside of us. Jesus sets an example of overwhelming the flesh by re, uh, overcoming the flesh by refocusing on the Spirit through prayer. I think it's powerful that Jesus remains in agony. Notice that he didn't say, but your will, not mine. And then all of a sudden, whoosh, it all went away. The pain, the agony, the grief, it just, all of a sudden he felt better. And it was good, and he just did what he needed to do. No, the agony stayed. He was our sympathetic high priest in that he, en- he, en- he endured what we endure. The pain, he faced doesn't, the pain that we face doesn't go away just because we refocus. Jesus felt every whip, every nail, every pang of grief and turmoil. How many of us have been there? How many of us have had the disappointment of life, the things that happen that have the potential to callous us? We feel that. And it's not wrong to feel it. That's part of life. Prayer doesn't necessarily change our emotions, 
It simply changes our perspective. Prayer gives us a heavenly perspective. Moving on into Romans here so we can set the context. Romans 8 verses 18 through 25. For I consider that the suffering at this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory that is to be revealed in us. For the, eagerly, for, for, for the eagerly awaiting creation waits for the revealing of the sons and daughters of God. For the creation was subject to futility, not willingly, but because of him who suggest, subjected it in hope that the creation itself also will be set free from its slavery to corruption and to the freedom of the glory of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation groans and suffers the pains of childbirth together until now. And not only that, but also we ourselves having the first fruits of the Spirit, even we ourselves groan within ourselves, waiting eagerly for our adoption as sons and daughters, the redemption of our body. For in hope we have been saved, but hope that is seen is not hope. For hope, for hopes for what is already sees. But if we hope for what we do not see, through perseverance, we await eagerly for it. The pains of childbirth are forgotten when you hold the baby. Or so I've been told. I don't know. That's what my wife said. We'll see in a couple weeks. Both pregnancies have been fine for me. That's all I'll say. But her, her sharing of that story is that even though it was painful when she held Grayson in her arms it was all worth it and you know what she did as is, is she was going through that she had me hold, hold our last sonogram of Grayson up so she could see his face she set the joy before her so she could endure what she endured he, here it says childbirth I think that's a great illustration holding the baby doesn't take the pain away did you suddenly not have pain no she didn't suddenly not have pain but the end makes it worthwhile. The pain of this life should not be minimized. But the glory we will receive makes it worthwhile. One day, it'll all make sense. Now, I know earlier I said that that's not quite the idea. And I want to I clarify that, that that's true. Not necessarily in our lifetime. Not necessarily on this side of heaven. We're not promised that there's going to be clarity here. We're not promised that we're going to get answers here. And that can be difficult. But the Spirit helps us to believe in that hope of glory. He promises what we cannot see. The Spirit intercedes for us. Moving into uh, verses 26 through 27. Now in the same way, the Spirit also helps our weakness. For we do not know what to pray as we should, but the Spirit himself intercedes for us with groanings deep, too deep for words. And he also searches the heart. He knows the mind of the Spirit. Because he intercedes for the saints according to the will of God. You might be hearing this tonight and saying, that's a hard word. That's difficult. How am I supposed to step out of my agony and pain and see this bigger picture? The good news is, you don't have to. At least not on your own. The Spirit helps us in our weakness. The Spirit prays for us, taking our prayer, translating into the words that align with the will of God. In doing so, He actually changes our hearts to mean the words that He takes to the Father. What Christ asks us to do is impossible. I don't think I can stress that enough. You cannot live the life that Christ wants you to live on your own. You must have the Spirit empowering you to do it. But when we act in faith, Praying even though we don't know what to say or maybe we don't even want to pray. He accepts that offering of faith and empowers us to do what he asks us to do. As we learn to trust the Spirit in this process, he changes our hearts, conforms our desires. I, I used to think that Romans 8.28 was about God opening a window when he closes a door. But I've come to realize that's only part of the picture. This verse is not a promise that everything's going to be easy. It's a reminder that things will be hard. But that's true whether we're a part of God's family or not. But if I do place my faith in Jesus because he's called me and predestined me for his purpose, then God works everything for my good. Now, some take that to mean that God causes hardship, that he, he purposefully puts things in your path to make things harder so that it shapes you. Others say that he simply allows it. Can I tell you tonight, I don't think it matters. Because it's not the events of life that conform us. 
It's the surrender and prayer that does that. However the events came about, I tend to believe that just because of the, the simple fall of man, our world is a place of destruction and death. And that's what we endure. But I believe that God uses those situations, despite those situations, to do the work that he set out to do. What matters is that we realize that it's not the events of life, it's the prayer of surrender that conforms us to the image of the Son. Now as we close this series, I guess you'd say, on prayer, I think it's important to go here. Because this is the part of prayer that often gets overlooked. We talk about prayer that changes things. We talk about prayer that, uh, that that's powerful. And, and we talk about prayer that we need to come together. And we, need to, we need to just declare prayer over our cities. And I am all for that. I think that's great. I love what we do on Tuesday nights where we come together and we pray. But prayer is very personal too. And sometimes we don't want to go there. Because it's hard. It's hard to open ourselves up to a God who sees everything. To that spotlight that just is ever blinding and sees every nook and cranny of what's inside of us. But we need to. Now last week I said that prayer doesn't just change people, it changes things. But can I say that prayer changes people. It changes people too. When we pray it changes us. Bad things happen. How we respond to those things matter. As I close tonight, I have three things that I want to offer as an invitation. And I tried very hard tonight to focus on the pain and the emotions that we feel because they're real. The grief that we walk through is real. And I know that sometimes in our, in our walk, we feel, especially with a sermon that's talking about, just look higher, look, look at the higher perspective, get, get out, of your, out of your grief and look at the perspective of heaven. It's easy to diminish what we feel. It's easy to think, well, I, I shouldn't feel that way because that's not the perspective of heaven. I'm too focused on my own story, right? Those emotions are going to be there. So you might as well just feel them. You might as well just let them be. Heavenly perspective doesn't equal denial. It just, it's a different perspective. Doesn't mean there's not pain. Jesus saw heaven's perspective but he still felt the pain that he felt. Lean into it. Go there. And I know in this room, there's grief. I know there's loss. I know there's hardship. I know I've lost in my own life. And there's pain and there's, there's places that are, are difficult. And I remember when that first happened, I felt the need to put on a smiley face on Sunday mornings. And I remember the relief the first Sunday that somebody walked up and said, Hey, how are you doing? And I said, I'm not good at all. Actually, I lost my dad about 10 years ago, and it was difficult, and I felt the need to put on a face, but we can't do that. It felt very relieving to say, I'm not good, and begin to open up and share, you know what, I don't even want to go spend time in worship because I'm angry with God. That's where I was. I've since walked past that, but that's where I was. That's what I needed to feel. I had a conversation with someone recently, and they were talking about how in their own grief, they, they came to a place of realizing, you know, that I think we all have this idea that we're going to have a, have a notebook full of questions that we take God one day, right? I know I have a lot. I have a lot of things I'd like to ask him. And, and this person said, you know, I, I feel like when I get to heaven, I'm just going to have all those answers already. And I said, I, I think that's a good, I think that's an okay thing to think. I, thought, I said, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to offer this step forward. I said, when I think about heaven one day, and I've got my notebook in my hand, I picture Jesus standing in front of me. And I picture myself locking eyes with him. And suddenly my notebook full of questions just don't seem that important anymore. When I look in his eyes and I see the kindness and I see the care, and I see the goodness, and I realize that whatever happened, I don't have to have answers. Because there's a deep place of trust that even in the midst of pain, he held me. He had me. That's what I think heaven's going to be like.
just not going to need the answers anymore. And if that's you tonight and you feel those emotions and you don't know what to do with it, can I just tell you, I don't, I don't know what you should do with it. I don't know how to make it go away. Ten years later, I still feel pain. But I do know that whenever I go to prayer and I surrender and I say, I don't know what to pray, the Holy Spirit intercedes for me. And he prays the things that I can't pray, that I don't even know how to pray. And somehow, that helps. So that's my first invitation tonight. The second is this. Maybe you've been carrying it for a long time. And and even though the pain isn't just going to go away, we do need to step into that heavenly perspective. And even though that's not something we can do on our own, I do believe that when we come to prayer and we surrender, that the Holy Spirit does a work in us. But we have to come to that place of surrender. We have to come to that place where we say, I don't know what this work looks like, but I'm open to it. I invite you to do it. Rehydrate me. Make those places that are hard and and, and aren't formable anymore, make them them soft. Make them malleable. I want to go to that next level and see heaven's perspective, and I can't from where I am, and I know you can get me there. So I surrender that. That, That's my second invitation. And the third is simply this. I hope that in these past three weeks, maybe this was stuff you've known. Maybe it's stuff that you've practiced. Maybe it's brand new to you. Maybe you don't agree with it. I don't care. My invitation is go deeper. Whatever that looks like. Go deeper and pray. Go deeper and pray. Whatever that needs to be. If that's a place of surrender, if that's a place of leaning into your emotions and communicating that to God, then do it. There's no right way to pray. Just do it. Just be honest with Him. Just open up. Go deeper. As we close in prayer tonight, those are the three things that I want to lift up. And I just encourage you, whatever spoke to you, let it sink in. Let it be deep. Let it be a part of you. Don't let it stay here and, and not walk out with you. Let it change the way that you approach. Dear Heavenly Father, I thank you for your word. I thank you that it changes us. I thank you for prayer. I thank you that you've opened a line of communication that we can come to you as your, as your sons and daughters. I pray that you would help us to lean into everything that we feel. You gave us those emotions. The pain of life is real, and it's not something that you expect us to just push away. It's there. You felt it. Let us feel it. Let us lean into it. Let us communicate it to you and be honest with you. And then let us go to the next level. Let us step out of it. Help us. Intercede for us. Take us to that place where we can begin to see heaven's perspective. I believe that what I, what I described of looking you in the face, I believe we can have a sense of that here. That sense of peace, that sense of trust here. And I pray that you'd give it to us. That you bring healing to the places that are broken. And lastly and most importantly, whatever it looks like for each person in this room, I pray that they would go deeper in prayer that they would take a next step. It doesn't have to be a big step, but that it would be a step. That they would take a step forward in their faith. That they would take a step forward in, in communicating with you. Lord, I pray that this three-week, whatever we want to call it, on prayer, would stick with everyone in this room, would stick with me. And that it would change us and shape us. I pray all these things in the precious name of Jesus. Amen. Thank you guys so much for joining us tonight. Pastor Mike, we'll be back next Wednesday. Uh, We would love to see you on Sunday, and uh, we'll look forward to seeing you there. God bless.